Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, the second chapter, and uh, tonight I'm going to preach part two of the sermon that I preached last week entitled God's Beautiful Building. I can't promise you that I can preach up an earthquake tonight. Um, I can't duplicate my miracles all the time, so (laughs) we'll do the best that we can as we preach tonight, though. Next week, we're going to finish up part number three of this sermon, and we'll finish out the second chapter. But if you're a member of a New Testament church, you need to thank God. Just praise the Lord that He's placed you here and given you the opportunity uh, to serve Him in such a wonderful way, and that's because there is no institution in the world like the church. God has And his uh, wisdom has given us the church, and this is God's plan and program in this age, in the New Testament era, until Jesus comes again. And I believe that the Berean Baptist Church is one of the Lord's New Testament churches. I, of course, don't believe in the universal invisible church, and so I believe that our church constitutes a body of the Lord Jesus Christ in this locality. And there are other true churches across our country and across the world, and they are, uh, represent a body of Christ in their part of the world. So we don't believe in the doctrine of universal invisible church. Talked about that some last week. But a universal invisible church, uh, as far as I can tell from the scriptures, makes no sense at all. It doesn't make any sense to me because it can't function in church capacity. It never baptizes anybody. It never is able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. There is no fellowship there. There's no teaching there. That's because it's a non-entity. It really doesn't exist. The church has to be local and visible, and all the churches in the New Testament were local and visible churches. Paul wrote to churches in the New Testament, and everyone that he wrote to was a local, visible church. Paul never wrote to an invisible church. Anybody here know the address of the universal church? I don't. That's probably why I didn't write to it. And Jesus, when he talked to churches in Revelation Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he was speaking to local, visible churches. And the church that Jesus started with his disciples in the New Testament is the same church that we uh, believe today. That's the beginning of the church. And all true churches can trace their uh, ancestry, you might say, all the way back to that first church in Jerusalem. Now, here in the end of the second chapter, uh, Paul gives us a discussion of the church, and he does that by presenting a progressive theme. First of all, he talks about the kingdom and that we are part of the kingdom. He speaks about being in the family of God. And then he comes to the highest expression of our relationship with Christ, the most intimate relationship that we have, and that's through the Lord's church. And he also speaks about, or alludes to, I think, although he doesn't mention it particularly, uh, the bride of Christ. And the church, the faithful members of the Lord's church, I believe, are the bride of Christ. And so, from this point on, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is addressing these New Testament Christians as they constitute a local church. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the last four verses of this chapter, same verses that we read last week, starting with verse number 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the New Testament church and for the 
blessing and privilege that we have of being a part of your church. Bless us as we talk about this tonight, and we'll give you the praise and the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is part two of the sermon, and it's another Baptist sermon tonight. I look over our congregation, I think I see all Baptists, so probably I won't offend anybody here. But we're going to talk a little bit about God's beautiful building. Last week I began uh, by speaking about the foundation of the church. So I'm going to take just a moment to review just a little bit about what we talked last week. Uh, verse number 20, church, uh, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And we learned last week that there, there is no founder of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus began the church during his earthly ministry. It was in existence when he went to the cross. It was in existence uh, when he ascended into heaven. And Jesus gave a promise there that the Holy Spirit would come to the church. And that's the time that the church was empowered. That was on the day of Pentecost. Well, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And so that means that he is the standard to which all the other parts of the church must conform. Uh, Jesus is our standard. Now, also laid in the foundation of the church are the apostles and the prophets. And the church is built upon the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. And when that last apostle died, and when the last prophet died, that's when the foundation of the church was complete. There is no such thing today as being able to add to the foundation of the church. Now, there are no modern-day apostles. There aren't any modern-day prophets, at least in this sense. And so there's nothing that really needs to be added to what God has already revealed to us in the Word. And so that means that the church cannot establish any kind of a tradition or any opinions of men... Add that to the scriptures, add that to what's being taught in the scriptures, and still be a right church. The church must have the right ordinances, it must have the right polity, it must have the right theology. And if it doesn't have those things, then it can't be a New Testament church. So the first area of discussion we talked about was the foundation, and the church has to have the right founders. Now, I want to move on this evening with the second area of discussion, uh, discussion concerning the foundation. And next, in order for a church to be a true church, it must have the right faith. A church has to be built upon the right faith. Now, Paul gives a very stern warning about the central doctrine of the church in the book of Galatians. And the central doctrine of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul gives a warning to anyone who would try to pervert that main theme and central doctrine of the church. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul wrote this. He said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you that ye have received, let him be accursed. And so the first kind of faith that we want to talk about tonight is the gospel faith. You simply cannot tamper with the truth of the gospel of Christ. Well, what is the gospel? I mean, we have to know that. Well, in reality, the gospel is everything that we know about in the Bible. Everything in the Bible, it covers from uh, creation all the way to glory that we read about in the Word of God. But Paul is speaking more specifically in the book of Galatians about how a person is saved. 
And that's what I want to talk about first, how a person is saved. And we cannot pervert that gospel of Christ. And anyone who doesn't teach the true gospel of Christ cannot be a true church. In the book of Galatians, Paul was rebuking uh, Christians at that time, people who were trying to get into the church, who said that you could be saved by keeping laws and commandments. Now, there are basically only two ways of salvation, and all schemes of salvation boil down to one of these two ways. One's the right way, one's the wrong way. The right way is salvation by grace through faith alone, with nothing added to that, no works that are added to that. It's to believe that that Christ has done all for us in salvation, that there's nothing else that needs to be added to what Christ has done. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Salvation is a free gift of God, and anything that's free means that you don't earn it. In fact, salvation is so free that the Bible teaches us that if you try to earn salvation, then you'll never receive it. In Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul said this, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So you can't get salvation by working for it. Now that's the right way, but there's also a wrong way of salvation. The wrong way is anything that deviates from justification by faith alone. That's a wrong way. And so that means that you could never be saved by keeping the sacraments of the Roman church. It means that you could never be saved by uh, keeping the righteous works and doing good things of the Protestant church. Those things are not going to save. If it is not salvation by grace through faith alone, then it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then there's a wider meaning of faith that we need to discuss. And the second kind of faith is the body of faith. Now, that's the sense in which the word faith is used in Jude verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, I want to reach all the way back to January of 2003. And I hope some of you remember the study that we had in Jude. We discussed this verse, and we discussed what this means, what this faith means. And the faith here means everything that's taught in the New Testament concerning Christ and the church. And so this is the comprehension of the whole truth, the whole body of truth of Christianity. Now, during Jude's day, very early on in the formation of the church, there were seeds of apostasy that were already being sown. There were people that were already sneaking in with false doctrines and infiltrating the church with all these false teachings. One of the problems that they encountered, we just discussed a moment ago, and that was people uh, were trying to add works to salvation, trying to add some kind of uh, laws and commandments that had to be kept in order for a person to be saved. But there were other problems also creeping into the church, other doctrines that were being perverted. And what the Word of God is telling us is we must stand upon all of the doctrines that are given to us by the apostles. We're not to give up on any of those doctrines. We're to stand firm on those doctrines. Now, I want to mention some of these things because uh, these are doctrines that we need to understand, doctrines that a church must be built upon. If we don't have these doctrines, then a church could not be a true church. So let's talk about a few of these. First of all, there is the doctrine of baptism. 
Now, I want to read a verse to you from Hebrews about doctrine. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer says in verse number 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Now, what that verse means is that each of these doctrines that he mentions there are things that we should be settled on. These are doctrines that we should have learned from the very beginning. There's no argument over these doctrines. There shouldn't be. And once we've learned these doctrines, then what we're supposed to do is to move on into the deeper doctrines of God's Word. We don't stop with these things. We go on to the deeper, uh, uh, other deeper doctrines. But one of the things that this that shows us here is that these things that he mentioned are foundational doctrines. These aren't things that you tamper with. These are settled doctrines. You don't mess with this. Now, I'm not going to preach a a message on baptism tonight. We talked a little bit about it last week. But I do need to mention a few things about baptism because it is a foundational doctrine. It's the foundational, a foundational doctrine in the church. And this has to be right. Now, baptism is a very important church doctrine. Uh, Baptism is an ordinance of the church. And the ordinances of the church can't be carried out by anyone except New Testament churches. So that means that not just everybody has the authority to baptize. Not everybody can say, well, we're, we can baptize, we're, we're a church, or whatever we are, so we can baptize people. You see, when churches are not true to New Testament doctrines, they aren't true churches, and therefore they don't have the right to practice New Testament ordinances. Now, unfortunately, this is an area where many Baptist churches have let down the bars. In this church, it is our practice that we will not take baptisms from other churches. We only accept baptisms from Baptist churches of like faith and order. Now, when you accept the baptism of another group, what you are actually saying is that you are putting your stamp of approval upon their doctrine. And we can't do that if they're not true churches. R.L. Dabney, who was um, the probably the foremost apologist for the Southern Presbyterian Church in the late 19th century, had something to say about this, and he probably explained it better than any Baptist could. He was writing more or less on an apologetic about why Baptists would not permit Presbyterians and, and other Protestants to take communion with them. And Dabney said this, he said, why should they? They believe that we are unbaptized. Now, you see, Presbyterians believe in sprinkling for baptism. Baptists have never accepted sprinkling, that that would be a proper motive of baptism. So we would not count that as being a right baptism. And so based upon that, uh, Baptist churches would not permit into the communion those who were baptized by sprinkling, such as the Presbyterians. So even the Protestant churches, though, they believe this. They believe that baptism is a prerequisite to communion. Now, they may be wrong about baptism, but they still believe that's a prerequisite to communion. But there are many Baptist churches today that not only don't stand on baptism and say, well, the baptism doesn't matter, but they'll admit anybody that wants to come to the communion. Well, both of those are church ordinances. And you can't have a proper church if you don't keep the ordinances properly. So if we're going to contend for the faith, we have to contend for the same faith that was delivered to the apostles and given to us. Now... A church has to be right on baptism. So let's look at the next one, and that is the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And there's never been a time in the history of Christianity, I don't believe, when we are faced with so much adversity over this point. 
And that is the inspiration and the infallibility of the Word of God. Now, it used to be that even the worst heathen that you'd run across out there in the world, he did believe this. At least he believed that the Bible was the Word of God. I mean, I almost didn't matter how bad off they were. They almost always believed that the Bible was the Word of God. You didn't have to convince people of that. But now what we have in our seminaries and our universities across our country, we have people who are training preachers, preachers who are supposed to go out and and handle churches and preach the Word of God, and these people in our seminaries and universities do not believe the Bible. They don't think the Bible is anything more than a book of fairy tales. And so we constantly see that. We've got people out here in, in the seminaries with doctor's degrees behind their names, and they really don't even believe that Jesus was God. All the miracles and the supernatural occurrences in the Bible, that's not true. Those are myths and those are fairy tales. They tell us there is no such thing as a literal six-day creation. So they don't believe that. And so what they've done, they've, they've joined the evolutionary scientists now. And so they, as well as the evolutionists, believe that the world has just come about by random, chaotic chance happenings. Now, you might be confused on some things, but don't be confused about this. Evolution is in no way, shape, or form compatible with Christianity. Those two things cannot mix. Now, some people try to soothe their consciences by saying, Oh, well, I believe in theistic evolution. And that's a misnomer if there ever was one. There is no such thing. All types of evolution deny the fall of man... And they deny the introduction of sin into the universe. And what they do is they put death before the fall. That's an impossibility. I mean, you you can't mix evolution with Christianity. Now, folks, here's what I believe. I believe that every word of the Bible is true. God created the world in six literal days. Noah built an ark. Maybe back up. Adam fell. I don't want to miss that one. Noah built an ark. There was a worldwide flood. David killed a giant. Elijah went up to heaven in a chariot of fire. God caused the sun to go backwards a few degrees in the time of Isaiah. I believe all of that. I believe that Elisha made an axe head to float. And I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe the blind could see, the lame could walk, and the deaf could hear. I believe all of that because the Bible says it. But that's not the only thing that I believe about the Bible. I believe also that God has the ability to preserve and to protect his word. So I don't believe that we need another translation uh, of, of God's word that casts doubt upon what God said and leaves you wondering about which parts God wrote and which parts somebody else added to it. I don't think that we need to subscribe to the, to the version of the month club. We don't need any of that. What I believe is that God has given us a reliable Bible. God has preserved his word for us, and I believe that he's preserved it for us in the King James Version. That's God's preserved word for us today. But I want to caution you about something. When I say that, I don't worship the King James Bible. The King James Bible is a translation, and I don't believe that any translation is inspired. I believe that when God gave the original words to the writers in the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, that... He gave them exactly the words that he wanted to write down. He breathed into those writers. He inspired them to write what they wrote. But the original words of God was in those languages. And that's why we need a translation. And God did not inspire translators in the same way that he inspired the original writers of the Bible. So if you worship the KJV 
as if it's inspired, the translator's inspired in the same way that Peter and Paul are inspired, then you're just as wrong as believing that the Bible's not really the Word of God. Now, some have gone so far to say that if you made a profession of faith by reading some other version of the Bible, that you're not really saved. And a few years ago, one of the largest churches in America, largest Baptist churches in America, started rebaptizing people because they used a different version when they made their confession of faith. Well, folks, that's nothing but foolishness. But then let's don't be fooled either by these other translations because God has the ability to preserve his word. God knew that the English-speaking people would be the ones who would be chiefly responsible for spreading the gospel around the world. And so he gave us a reliable translation. He gave us his preserved word, I believe, in that translation. Now, the, the Bible that we have, the King James Version, very soon will be 400 years old. And it's still as good as it ever was. It's still the word of God. It's still trustworthy. It's still reliable. So we don't need anything but that. So, folks, we're talking about rudimentary doctrine. I mean, we're talking about foundational item items. A church must be built on the faith. And that's the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, there's a third doctrine. And this is the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Now, surely we would agree on this. I mean, we, we need to understand the deity of Christ. I mean, that's a landmark fundamental of Christianity. I mean, how could you have Christianity without a Jesus who's not 100% God? And yet we find people don't believe that. I mean, there are people who want to be included in Orthodox Christianity who, who really don't believe that Jesus is God or that don't believe in the deity of Christ. The Mormons deny it. The Jehovah Witnesses deny that. All the cults deny it. You can't be a true church if you don't believe in the deity of Christ. Now, of course, the, the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses will say that they believe that Jesus is God. Only they put a little qualifier in there. Jesus is a God. And that you can become a God just like Jesus is a God. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the deity of Christ. Maybe better said, it's a fundamental lie. Because that's really what it is. Jesus is the God. He's Jehovah God. He's one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus is not uniquely God, then he couldn't have been our Savior. And if Jesus is not uniquely God, we don't have any hope. So Jesus is Lord. He's God. So to be a true church, we have to contend for the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Now here's uh, another doctrine, the fourth one I want to talk about. This is the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. This one gets a little bit sticky because uh, all Baptists believe in a substitutionary atonement, although I don't think all Baptists really understand it correctly. Most people do not believe in literal substitution. Rather, they believe in a hypothetical substitution. So let me explain it to you this way. In order for substitution to be literal, then that means that Christ would have to suffer your hell for you, and he suffers it in such a way that as your substitute, you couldn't possibly be condemned for any sin that Christ paid for. And that's exactly what I believe. That's a literal substitution. But there are many people who believe that there are people in hell right now for whom Christ paid for their sins. In other words, Christ suffered for their sins, and still they have to suffer for their sins as well. You say, well, how can anybody believe that? I mean, how does that work? Well, they believe in hypothetical substitution. That means that it doesn't become real substitution until you mix it with your faith, and then it becomes real substitution. But that's a substitution that's not substitution at all. Now, here's the thing. 
If Christ really did pay for the sins of people who are in hell, then one of two things has to be true. Either his suffering was odd enough, or it doesn't have the value that was intended. You can't have it any other way. Now, the truth is, if Christ paid for the sins of all people who wouldn't believe, then all people who wouldn't believe also would go to heaven. You know why? Because you can't have sins that are paid for and at the same time have a just cause for condemning somebody for their sins. If the sin's paid for, then why are they condemned? And so that's the universalist argument. So he believes, yes, Christ paid for the sins of everybody, so everybody's going to heaven regardless of whether you believe or not. So there's really no hell for us to believe in at all. At least that's more consistent. That would be the natural outcome of it. So the only way to believe substitution rightly is to believe that Christ paid for the sins of everyone who would believe. And Christ knows exactly who these people are. He paid for their sins. And he paid for their sins in that way because that's exactly what he intended to do. You see, this is what the covenant of redemption is all about. This is why we study things like this. This is what we talk about. We talk about election. That's what it's all about. That's what John 17, read it. That's what it's all about. John 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now, when he said that, this is what it's all about. He died to redeem those who were given to him by the Father. So there is no redemption for anyone else. Otherwise, redemption would mean that everybody goes to heaven. Doesn't matter whether they believe or not, because Christ only made one sacrifice. There's not two sacrifices of Christ. But that's an area of confusion for many people. So let me just say this. I'll sum it up in this way. You must believe that Jesus died for you personally and not that Jesus died for the mass of humanity only. Jesus died to save you personally and you must receive him personally as your Lord and Savior. Now, if you hear me say that Christ died for all those who would believe him, that's exactly what I mean. Christ died as a personal Savior for every believer. He's not an impersonal sacrifice. And his substitution on the cross was literal substitution. And it's a substitution for everybody who would believe. Now, that covers substitution, but still you might be confused about the word atonement. What what does that mean? Well, the word atonement when we use the word, generally refers to the imputation of our sins to Jesus as the means by which we're reconciled to God. Jesus took our sins upon himself, and when he did that, when he died on the cross, he satisfied God for our sins, and so we don't have to suffer for the sins that Jesus paid for. Now, it should be clearly evident to us that if Christ in the atonement and the sacrifice through the atonement, that for whomever that atonement is made must mean that their sins have been canceled. The debt of their sins has been paid, and so they aren't responsible for them. So substitutionary atonement means that the substitute satisfied God for sin, and that's exactly the way it is. And so that's why atonement has to be just for those for whom it was intended. So if it doesn't do that, it's not real atonement because it really doesn't satisfy. Now, the atonement, though, this is an extremely important doctrine for us as Christians because Christianity is the only religion that has an atonement. Christianity is the only religion that has the just dying for the unjust. Nobody else has that. And so we need to be right on the atonement. Now, what Baptists really need to do, I believe, is we need to go back to our roots 
And we need to go back to what Baptist forefathers preach. And I've told you many times before, all you've got to do is look up the history, read what Baptist preachers wrote throughout history, and you'll find that what we're preaching at Brian Baptist is exactly one and the same with what our forefathers believed. Now, let's go on to another uh, doctrine that true churches preach, and that's the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. Now, a church that doesn't preach the bodily resurrection of Christ is not a true church. But as I say that, I want you to understand that if by the resurrection and belief in the resurrection you still believe in a Christ that's hanging on the cross, then you haven't really learned the impact of the resurrection. I don't need to see Christ hanging on the cross because he's no longer there. Christ is right now enthroned at the right hand of God. And so there's no need to pray to or to kiss or anything else a Christ hanging on the cross. He's not there any longer. Christ arose from the grave. But the seminarians and the theologians today, uh, they're not too sure about that. They're not really sure that Christ actually arose from the dead. And for them, that's not really an essential thing. And that's because they got messed up way back at the beginning. When they got messed up into this evolutionary stuff and not understanding the fall of man, then they don't need a Christ that's resurrected. They don't need a Savior at all because there's really nothing at all to be saved from. See, if you don't understand the fall of man and what that was all about, why do you need a resurrected Savior? doesn't make any sense. You don't need a dying and a bleeding Savior. If there's no sin to be saved from, if there's no fall of man, then we don't need a Savior. All we need to do is just be good. Try real hard. And maybe it'll all work out in the end. Maybe it'll all balance out. We don't need a Savior if there is no fall. But that's what they teach in seminaries today. But folks, the fact of the matter is, without a resurrected Savior, there's no hope for any of us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So if there is no resurrected Christ, if there is no life beyond the grave, then what good's Christianity? What purpose does it serve? Why do we need a resurrection of Christ? You see, this is a fundamental thing. It's non-negotiable doctrine. You can't change the resurrection of Christ. And people who do not believe, churches who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, can't be true churches. Then we have the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. There are many different ideas about the events concerning the second coming, and there's lots of differences of opinion. If you look down through history and find out what people have believed, there are post-millenaries, there are amillenaries, there are pre-millenaries, and I'm not going to explain what all that's about, uh, but... There's different ideas, but this one central truth has always remained in, in, in any of those systems, and that is there is a second coming. Jesus is coming back, and that's what we believe. We believe in a personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The angels said to the disciples as Jesus was ascending into heaven in Acts chapter 1, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And that tells us that Jesus is coming back. And the Bible teaches us Jesus could come back at any moment. And when he does come, he's going to take his people out of the world. And eventually this whole world is going to be renovated. And we'll be waiting to see a new heaven and a new earth. Now, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to teach these things. We've got to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. All of these doctrines I'm talking to you about are fundamental doctrines. You don't change them. But then we need to go one step further concerning the church. Now, these are major doctrines I've been talking about, but there are other doctrines, and I don't mean they're not major, but 
I want to talk to you about those in a little bit different way. The next thing we have is the doctrine of ordinances. And we've already talked about this some, but the ordinances of the church have to be right. We're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are only two ordinances in the church, and these are baptism and the Lord's Supper, and neither of the ordinances convey any grace upon the participant. These are memorials. They're memorials only. Now, I believe that baptism is our public declaration of Christ. Now, there are many people who believe that when you walk this aisle, you stand up here and you tell people that you're saved, that's your confession of Christ. That's not your confession of Christ. The public confession of Christ is what we do in baptism. And until a person is baptized, he has not publicly confessed Christ. That's what all the disciples did in the New Testament. They all were baptized, and that was their confession of Christ. So baptism in that sense, that's very important to us. But the Lord's Supper is also important. That's a memorial supper. As I said, there's no grace that comes from it. And Paul says that the church is to observe this until the Lord comes again. And so the church observes the supper because we believe in the second coming of Christ. We believe the promise that Jesus is coming back. So the ordinances are important. Baptism is important, particularly because that is our entrance into the church. You can't have true churches with unbaptized people. The next thing we have to have is doctrine of congregational polity. And that has to do with the government of the church. The government of the church is congregational. And that means that as a church, we have the right to conduct our own affairs. There's nobody over us. We don't have a synod. There is no presbytery. There is no hierarchy of of bishops and cardinals and popes. None of that has any authority over the church. The church is congregational. And every New Testament church is a body of Christ itself. It's free from any outside interference. And the only head it has is Christ. So there is nobody that directs this church because we are independent congregational body. So the government of the church, I think, has to be right. Next thing, the doctrine of officers. There are only two ordained offices in the church. Pastors and deacons. Pastor is the under-shepherd of the church. He's to lead the church spiritually under the headship of Christ. He has spiritual oversight of the church. The other office is that of the deacons. And the deacons have the duty of assisting the pastor and doing other church matters as the church deems fit. The word deacon means servant. And so deacons are to be servants of the church. And so those are the only two officers we have in a church. Then lastly, let's just deal with this and we'll be done when we talk about the faith, and, and I don't leave this one till last because it's unimportant. This is not unimportant. It's extremely important. And I've left it till last because we need to emphasize it. And that is the doctrine of evangelism. To evangelize means to preach the gospel. Now, folks, we can know the gospel, and we can have the gospel, and we can sit on the gospel. And we're not a true New Testament church, a true New Testament church, unless we preach the gospel. And so that means that we're to follow the main objective that Christ gave us. What did Christ say? He gave us a commission. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, have social events. And Jesus didn't say, build school buildings. And Jesus didn't say, recreate. Have fun in the church. Jesus didn't say any of that. He said, preach the gospel. 
And everything else that we do, we can do without, but we can't do without that. We have to preach the gospel. So if we don't preach the gospel of Christ, we can't be a true New Testament church. And so that means we have to evangelize. We start right here in Roanoke Park, as the Bible teaches. We go to California, we go to the United States, and we go to the world. It's our responsibility to preach the gospel. So New Testament churches have to be organized properly. They must preach the same doctrines that were once delivered to the, to the apostles who transferred those doctrines to us. We've got to preach the very same things that they preached. We're to contend for the whole body of faith. Everything that we read in the scriptures, all of that is to be taught to the people. So that's the foundation of the church. It's built upon Jesus, built upon the apostles, built upon the prophets. It's built upon the doctrines of the faith. And to be true New Testament churches, we must have all of those things. And only a true church has the authority to do God's work God's way. So when I say thank the Lord that you're a member of a New Testament church, be serious about that. Really, thank Him that God's led you to a place where the truth of the Word is preached because there are so many out there who are not preaching the truth of God's Word. So count that as a blessing. The church is built on Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, and the faith the faith that we read in the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to preach your Word tonight. Some things we talk about are difficult. We just ask you, Lord, that you'd help to open our eyes to the truth of your Word, that we might understand it better. Be with us in this invitation tonight. We pray for our church and bless us as we come back to this place on Sunday to preach your Word again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.